Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm joined in the studio today by my movie reviewing buddy, Alan Appel. Alan, it's good to have you back. It's Hi, good to Tom. be here. Pleasure. Uh, I gave Alan some last-minute viewing assignments for today's show, but I think that he is much more prepared uh, than perhaps any other guest could be because he has uh, a pretty long and intimate relationship with the subject matter of one of the movies we'll be talking about today. That is The Catcher Was a Spy, a new movie from director Ben Lewin about uh, a former baseball player turned CIA agent Mo Burke. Uh, we'll also see if we have some time to talk about the new Morgan Neville documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, about Mr. Rogers, more of a documentary of the show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, than the man himself, but I think there's plenty of interesting stuff to mind there, too. Uh, Alan, how about we, uh, to do a little on-air production meeting, how about we talk about our thoughts on The Catcher Was a Spy first, and then we'll get to your history with the material? Sure, absolutely. So this movie has an pretty incredible cast. Uh, we have Paul Rudd uh, playing the uh, the main character, Mo Berg. We have Paul Giamatti, Jeff Daniels, Tom Wilkinson, Guy Pierce. Uh, it's a, I think star-studded is an applicable term, and it's a fascinating story of a uh, early, mid-20th century baseball player who is recruited by the uh, precursor to the CIA uh, to potentially assassinate if the occasion calls for it the uh director of nazi germany's um i guess nuclear or uh atom bomb development program or, right We're, so, Werner heisenberg Werner heisenberg so alan this movie has been panned by just about i think every critic that i've read and we were talking about how at the criterion cinema in downtown new haven it's been relegated to the the puny little uh, screen eight or screen nine, where well, it's, it's kind the, of like a theater, home theater. You're right, theater nine, which I aspire <laughs> to uh, go to more often. It's it, it certainly is a great opportunity for the theater to show movies that people may not otherwise see, but it is strange to see such, again, star-studded cast uh, on this small screen. So I guess my question for you is, um, did this movie fail for you in the way that it seemed to fail for a lot of other people evaluating it? Uh, and if not, why? Well, you're right. The question is when you when you assemble such a star-studded cast and you have such a great story, a baseball player, a Jewish baseball player, graduate of Princeton in um, 1922, who gets drafted, he the greatest baseball player Princeton ever produced, a Jewish guy in the era of the very serious quota system uh, at Princeton, especially at Princeton, which is a kind of southern school uh, in the north. He ex excels so much. He he um he's drafted by a team called the Brooklyn Robins, which a year later becomes the Brooklyn Dodgers. It's a great story, and then it, it segues into World War Two. Uh, Although we should be clear, this movie doesn't include any of that material. This, this movie is pretty specifically about eight years in this man's life between uh, the mid nineteen thirties towards the end of his professional baseball career. I think he's playing with the Boston Red Sox through the mid nineteen forties when he's at you know full blown. Uh, OSS mode. A fascinating background. Maybe that's part of the problem that the movie does not go. This isn't a biopic per se of Moberg. Well, well, that's the, that's the interesting uh, cinema theory question. Is when you are when you do a biopic, um, the received wisdom is that you can't do an entire life in in two hours. Uh, what do you do? Uh, what do you flash back to? What do you omit? And uh, you know, in every single scene, uh, obviously um, the. The, the backstory of every scene is what scenes were not chosen to do. Um, but, uh, and maybe that's, maybe that's part of the issue. 
of of why uh, I, I don't think of the movie as a as a kind of failure. Um, uh, it's a fail. It's a failure of expectations. If with such a cast and such a story on paper, it should be greater. But um, uh, you know, I walked out. I walked out feeling the, the the word that came to mind is some word that I, I picked up in one of the reviews, which was flat. Um, and uh, so the movie doesn't generate, doesn't build, does there doesn't there isn't a cascade of emotional attachment. Um, and actually, um, I was trying to think about what I what uh, sometimes I give myself a test about what I remember about a film a day or two later, and I remember it visually. There's something about the palette of colors, what this what the production design did to evoke, you know, uh, to evoke uh, Rome and uh, to, uh, to evoke Princeton. Uh, it's beautifully produced. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the reviews I read. It, 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 do I have it right that Tony Scott at the New York Times truly didn't like it? Or there was a, a weekday review which was just a kind of straightforward. My wife said there were the, uh, uh, the second Times review was not... a and it was not a plus, but it wasn't a minus. It was just a, there it is, a kind of flat review for a flat film. I think that's my take on it, and we could talk about why we've come to that impasse. <laughs> so I'm I'm glad that you said that you left this movie, that, that kind of one word describes your experience with this movie, and that's flat, because I had a very similar experience where I left, there was this one word just kind of clouding, crowding out anything else in my head after leaving it. That's maybe a synonym for flat. It was inert. <laughs> It yeah, was every, yeah. Everything about this movie was just um, it, flat, inert, uninspiring, which is, I think, also a very difficult to mesh with the expectations and with the story that is nevertheless, you know, on display. I, I don't think the story is told incoherently by any means in, in the movie. It's told in quite a straightforward fashion. And I think that the problem, unfortunately, you know, I always... Um, I'm very reluctant to put any blame on actors for a movie struggles because I think that problems with the movie tend to originate with a screenplay or with direction before uh, any one given actor, any one particular, you know, Paul Rudd is that, taking the hit. I think that Paul Rudd really yeah. struggles as the center of this, which is so strange because his whole career, which primarily in comedy has been one of this, uh, this, bashful and self-deprecating uh just incredible beautiful i mean he's a very attractive man he has he has the james bond movie star good looks and i think in his filmography he has always played on that uh to come off as sometimes a bit of a buffoon sometime as as someone with a very sharp but self-deprecating wit and here he really i mean if the thesis of the movie and We'll talk about Nicholas Davidoff's book in a second, uh, which this this story is based off of, is that Mo Berg is an ambiguous man. Maybe ambiguous is the word that the movie wants us to leave with. Rudd plays ambiguous as flat <laughs> instead. I mean, this right. person who knows you know upwards of 20 different languages instead uh, can't seem to muster any of the charisma for the screen that would require the viewing audience to be as intrigued by him as that's right. Everyone should be. Well, that's right. I mean, the, the the question is, if you if if you make a movie about boredom, the uh, the, the the movie itself shouldn't be boring, uh, even though the subject is. And in the in the case of 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 this film, uh, the challenge with with Moberg, who is who is an enigma, um, uh, maybe we should quickly outline it. That is, he was a he was um, a Jewish guy who uh, uh, 
always kind of sought non-Jewish uh, venues like Princeton, like being a ball player uh, in the off season. He went to Columbia, your alma mater, I think mine too, to some extent, and uh, got a law degree uh, and work, he, he worked for white shoe firms. He sort of always sought that kind of uh, zone between not this and not that. The, 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 the problem with what you call inert and um, uh, the problem with Rudd is that he, he doesn't seem to really enjoy his enigmatic self hmm. and, um, he's, and, and, and he's not struggling with it. He's not even struggling with his uh, queerness in the 1930s and 40s. He, he simply says when he's challenged by, um, is that Jeff Daniels? Uh, the head of the OSS uh, when they're, he's being recruited. The, the, the question is, are you queer? And he just absorbs the question in a kind of um, uh, a kind of interesting silence. I believe his mouth says, is agape. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> his the, mouth is, right, there's little more than mouth agape. <laughs> but what he says is, I can, I, I keep secrets. I enjoy keeping secrets. And um, the problem that I discovered when I was well to 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 get back to my relation with Mo Berg when I was commissioned to write a play about him, is that um, uh, he um, he he is a mystery to himself. And that's the problem, is that he... he, he and, and the filmmakers have to make decisions about who they think he is, and uh, the material of his life doesn't really help that much because he never, it seems to me, um, faced himself. The uh, Okay, I, I think that uh, it may be good to transition a bit to your relationship with this material, but I do want to... Th- uh, just a few more quick thoughts on the movie. One, you ask about, uh, I also challenge myself to, you know, a few days after seeing a movie, what scenes do I remember? What do I remember of, you know, my impression of the movie to see what stuck with me? And unfortunately, uh, the scene that, that I remember most uh, is a very explicit sex scene with his girlfriend towards the, the beginning towards of the, the movie. Begin- well, they want, which right. is, which comes immediately after his, a somewhat prudish, depiction of him walking in and out of a gay bar in boston uh there's nothing there there's more than hinting i mean the movie's making clear that this man is uh is going into a gay bar but there's no there's no romance or sexual activity there and then we're presented with i mean i'm no prude for what is displayed in movies but it seemed like such a bizarrely stark contrast uh where we have this you know, I don't know, minute long sex scene with his girlfriend. I think that she's the- she's playing playing the piano and right. and apparently he's he's so uh, uh, energized by Mozart or whatever she's playing that he he really completely jumps her in a kind of uh, violent, no, rough way. But it seems to be a, a way for him to. Well, at least I thought, away from him to prove to himself exactly. that he is not defined by homosexuality or heterosexuality. He is. He seems to be someone who uh, exists above uh, typical human categorizations. He's well, it's interesting that you bring this up because bit of an the, Ubermensch, right? Because because I thought the movie made a decision to deal with the enigma of Moberg. Like, who is he? What's his true struggle? Is his true struggle um, being a kind of a ball player who loves the game but isn't that good at it is his struggle that he's a jewish guy in an anti-semitic world is his struggle and is his struggle that he's a gay man in a in a world that, that doesn't accept that at all and i think the movie um makes its decision that he's that he's the on the on the side of the gay subject but on the other hand it doesn't struggle with it it just notes it as one of the more prominent of his unusual qualities 
But in fact, if if we see the if he's uh, have a, has a dalliance in the gay bar, which it continues throughout the movie when he goes to Japan, um, uh, and, and then he keeps his relationship with Estelle. We can talk about how much that's true or not based on the David Ross biography. But uh, it seems to me that that the the movie is too timid to really follow through with with the struggle of a gay man in that i mean to make to, to make us want to root for him if we wanted to root for for his trying to prove that it was okay to be gay or to confront people in fact he does slug a guy on his team who accuses him of being gay uh just beats the crap out of him uh which is a kind of equivalent of the sexual episode to assert that that's not the case when in fact it is uh this is an interesting movie, but the movie doesn't explore that. I, I, I think that is perfectly, but I think that exactly why the juxtaposition of those two scenes stuck out to me is because of that lack of struggle with any of Moberg's more salient, interesting attributes. Um, let's get into your relationship with the story because uh, I, we should <laughs> this, this, this is, this is the true meat of the, of the episode listeners. So thank you for sticking with us thus far. Uh, you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHH LP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm talking with someone who has written and written and written about Mo Berg. And yet, really, I, I don't know many specifics about your history working on the story. Could you tell us and the listeners about, I don't know, how'd you first come across the story of Mo Berg and what has been your own uh, creative intersection with his his life? Well, it's funny. I think New Haven must be the, uh, must be ground zero, pardon the expression, for Mo Berg research in the, in the United States because uh, Nick Davidoff, who wrote in 1999, I believe, what not the first, but what has become really the definitive biography of Moberg, Davidoff is uh, is uh, a New Havener. And uh, was on this show previously to talk about uh, there the you go. films of Robert Frank. So There you go. And thank he, you, David. And, and among things that he's written about are, um, yeah, he does. He did sports uh, sports articles for the New York Times Magazine. So And he... And I think he was, uh, I think he was naturally drawn to the, to the Mo Berg character because um, I, I know a bit about his life because his, let me see, his aunt is my daughter's godmother, and he he had a he had an enigmatic uh, and profoundly talented father. So I think he was really drawn to the subject, and I I, I do think uh, in some of the reviews, the comments that he's made in the reviews. Apropos of Moberg's uh, uh, gayness, he he said there was he 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 you know all his research he combed all the art uh, the archives and there was no evidence that he had a gay relationship with anybody, um, which of course doesn't mean anything, especially in an era when uh, all gay men uh, passed and many were married, and I think that Moberg comes out of that. So what do I have to do with all this? Well, long before I knew um, um, about um, uh, Davidoff, I was commissioned. I don't know how many years ago this is. No, it must be. It must be after the Davidoff book. By so the a, book was ninety four. Okay, like, yeah. So, so at least five or six years later, um, I was commissioned by the guy to to write a play about Moberg. And why write? Who, a, who are you commissioned by? Uh, the the this was a, a kind of little uh, consortium of Long Island Jewish sports nuts. Who have who had produced a series of DVDs and movies about um, the like the greatest Jewish basketball players and you know so Mo Berg stands out if you're a Jewish sports fanatic as a very unusual guy 
um, certainly not the most baseball accomplished. That would be Hank Greenberg and Koufax, those people. But because because uh, he is unusual, there were Jewish ball players in in you know in the, in the at the beginning of the game. But he stands out because there's something about his combination of sports plus this kind of um, brilliance, which is really not kind of brilliance, but but it, it, he he had a tremendous memory, I think. And I don't think he spoke 10 languages. I think he was able to memorize about 15 or 20 sentences in each language, which he performs in the movie when he goes to Japan. I'm going to interject maybe throughout this with brief asides about the movie, because I think that may be one of the only successful good. scenes Very in the movie. Very good. Wonderful when scene. The team, uh, so he is uh, an aging ball player. He's probably in his late, uh, mid-30s. Uh, late 30s, playing with the Boston Red Sox. He's invited to go over with some other uh, legendary American baseball players to Japan to play an exhibition, exhibition 19, game. 1936. 1936. Uh, and, he, and he has this reputation, or he's cultivated this reputation as a, uh, as a language master. Some people think that he speaks Japanese, but he doesn't really. So Paul Rudd on the ball field uh, introduces himself to some, I guess, Japanese uh, press or businessmen, some people dressed in suits on, on the field, and says, basically, I, I don't know Japanese. I just know this much. Can you please clap me on the back when you're when I'm done talking so that my friends think that and I'm I, smarter than I actually am? And I've memorized the speech. So it would have been wonderful. Uh, the, the movie also could have been about a guy who has all these achievements. Uh, he, he He's a baseball player, but he bats only 243. He, he's a language person, but he really only can, he's a bit of an idiot savant about almost everything. Um, he could have, the movie could have dealt with that, but every, everything is, is, um, you know, it's touched on and you go to the, because there's so many fascinating little things. That's like a charm bracelet of things that it, it didn't dig in. But so, but, but my, my relationship to all this is that I was challenged to, 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 um, write a play that would, uh, really get Mo Berg. And these people who commissioned me, had also optioned um, previous biography of Mo Berg that was written by a well-known Boston sports writer. So he had the rights to a previous biography, but it wasn't as good as David Uff's. Um, so I tried to do this, and uh, uh, I wrote many, many drafts of the Mo Berg story. And I, 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 at a certain point, because he is a guy who was so unreflective um, and wrote so li- and le- left nothing in terms of diary and letters so but he did have he did have a brother an older brother and a sister uh, and um so i ended up the uh, of the many drafts i worked my way through i ended up um doing the first one which uh has a surreal quality to it which uh you know our editor paul bass he likes that best six or seven drafts later i realized that if it was going to be a play that would be seen by like normal people uh uh, it couldn't have uh, these surreal elements, and 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 the um, the commissioners of the play wanted something that was more or less conventional. So I ended up writing a play in which we saw Berg through the eyes of the brother and the sister, mm. which is very interesting because he had a very interesting brother, like the first American doctor into Nagasaki, and a sister who was a kind of um, a frustrated artist in her own right. And Berg, after the baseball career. Uh, uh, lived on his laurels, um, and never married, never succeeded in business. It was one of these guys who ended up hanging out at the press box uh, and lived with his brother and sister, mooching off them for the rest of his life. And I believe Davidoff says in an early chapter that Sam, Sam is the older brother, Sam, and ends and, up kicking him out. 
right? Of, yeah, because he would see, he would call up the brother and say, "Can I come by for the weekend?" And like eight months later, he would still be there, and he was not a good guest. Uh, Berg had many, in addition to all these kind of brilliant uh, qualities, he was. Um, I guess you would. I don't like to characterize people with psychological tags, but he was very OCD. Uh, he he would he he would not let you touch a newspaper that until he finished reading it. And he kept them all in a pile. And if you touched the newspaper in the wrong way, he, he, if, he would know that you had lifted it up and put it back down in the pile. He was a very good spy in his own life because he, he could notice those kinds. Of, oh, and he, he bathed three times a day. So what, This so, is a weird guy. So if we, um, if we struggled with the catcher was a spy a bit because of the restricted chronology and maybe leaving out. I mean, it's always difficult when you know the source material beforehand because there's certain things you expect to see. But if chronology is a problem that every biographer and every biopic director has right. to deal with, uh, what was your tack? You said that you told it from the perspective a bit of the siblings' relationship to Berg, but this across the whole life, focused on the end of their lives. What part, what era of Berg did you seek to tackle in your play uh drafts well I, I mean i sensed also that even from a dramatic point of view the the attempt to uh, assassinate heisenberg um w would be a very important element uh, in it and in, in fact based on the evidence that we have um it was a very brief episode apparently he was so nervous that he dropped his gun in the cloakroom uh and as far as this elaborate training with um the oss and so on and so forth uh, you know, the the movie takes huge, uh, uh, huge liberties with this, and actually turns the lo the last twenty minutes into a cat and mouse game between uh, the, between Heisenberg and. Uh, uh, how wonderful would it have been if the nerves were on display in this movie? I mean, if if there was a bit of that of that stumbling through. I mean, he's just he's just Paul Rudd's just kind of playing a the it's a, it's typical. A Bond. I mean, Bond is the person who comes to mind, but it's like it becomes a war movie at the end, a war spy movie. Right, and they have that chess game between these two brilliant minds. I mean, it's it's, yeah. So I I um. I think what I did in one there's so many drafts of this play that I that I did, uh, but in in one case, um, uh, I don't know what we. I think we we uh, we flash back. Um, to uh to, uh, to Berg, Berg is living with the with the with the sister after the brother has thrown him out and um he's uh he 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 really um uh has become in his brother's eyes a complete bum but in the sister's eyes he's a person who not, who not only deserves the medal of freedom he deserves the adoration of America for having uh, potentially saved the country or, or or was given that task so it it becomes a kind of sibling rivalry story uh and um uh when he talks about uh and he and he refuses to talk he refuses to talk to his family about the heisenberg material because either he thinks it's still classified or he just wants to impress them with secrecy and he has this habit of when they when they because they they would like to get some benefits of his living with them and mooching off of them, including some great tales. But he kind of torments them with a finger raised over his shut lips, which infuriates them. 
So it becomes a it becomes a story of three people, and it's interesting because Berg is this kind of in between person. Um, I guess my take on it was the the three or four different ways of being um, a, a Jew in a Gentile world uh, at this period. The brother becomes a successful doctor, and the the and the sister is becomes relatively religious. So, um, it. Uh, she insists on reburying Berg, who died in Newark, New Jersey, uh, where he's buried. She wants to take his, his ashes to Jerusalem, and the older brother thinks she's out of her friggin' mind. Uh, and so they basically are arguing about the disposal of this great hero's remains, and he comes to life uh, in the course of their uh, debating where his sepulcher should be. I'd, I'd love to get your take on that. It's fascinating. I mean, the I think what most interests me, I'd love to talk about Berg, the baseball player a bit, because I think but that, you see, I took, that is I took, what... I took Berg, the Jew, well, as that, opposed I'm, to the movie, which takes Berg, Berg, the closet gay man. Yes. Yeah. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I think that from what I've read in Davidov's book, he's, so my, probably my favorite line in the Davidov book thus far, I've read maybe the first hundred pages, is he's, uh, I think it's when Berg is, off studying at the Sorbonne in Paris after his first summer playing for the Brooklyn Robins after he's graduated from Princeton, but he's just kind of immersing himself in like 20 classes at, at Paris, but he's still longing to come back to America to play baseball. He can't shake this, this itch of his, his love for pay, playing baseball, despite his incredible capacity for academic achievement. And Davidoff asks, you know, what about this incredibly, Kind of talented and someone blessed with a, just an inimitable memory. Um, what was attractive to him about coming back to be mediocre at baseball? Like this, this man seems to be exceptional in every aspect. What is this attraction to something mediocre? And I think that what you're getting at, and I think what Davidoff gets at, is that he there's a certain comfort that he found in baseball. Um, there was it was a means of assimilation of shaking off his. Uh, whatever outsider status he felt as as a Jew or as someone who was <clears throat> who was I don't know categorically different from everyone in in every aspect of his life. But what I, in your maybe reflecting on the movie, but also in your own research and own place, uh, why and also considering that you were commissioned by a group of you know Long Island Jews who are interested in Jewish athletes, what does Moberg's story tell us about uh, about about baseball, about what baseball meant to him, about what baseball as a as this broader kind of cultural phenomenon does for immigrants in America. It just seems like I, I was much more interested in the the CIA man as baseball player as opposed to the baseball player as CIA man. I feel like the direction of like the academic towards baseball was a much more interesting one than than the other way around. But yeah, I don't know. And was did baseball figure prominently in the drafts that that you wrote and? Oh yeah, it, yes, because there was uh, there's there's evidence, uh, and I I pursued this. Uh, uh, this was a big part of uh, of one of my drafts that he uh, he was looking always looking for a job in his retirement. He he uh, actually wanted to have I made this up or is it in the evidence? I can't tell anymore. Uh, he wanted to be baseball commissioner. He loved baseball. I think his relationship to baseball was both because it was one of the great. I I, I mean. Uh, you know, I'm not the first one to say that, uh, you know, uh, baseball is the great American, has been, at least up to now, the great American assimilator. 
and I think he was drawn to it for that, in addition to having great talent. Um, he uh, started out as a shortstop when he was, he, that's how he was drafted, shortstop, and he got he got kind of injured, or the catcher got injured, with, and, and he, he became the catcher. And if you think about it, uh, great title, the catcher was a spy, but what does the catcher do? The catcher, A, wears a mask, B, gives all the signals, is in charge. The catcher sees the whole field all the time. Uh, uh, there's a scene in the early on in the movie where where Berg sh- uh, uh, shakes off the pitcher uh, and throws somebody out because he knew the runner was going to run. And then when somebody asks him, how did you know? He says, I just know. So there's this instinctual quality about baseball, a kind of an- a sense of anticipation um, that I think he was, uh, I think Berg was, was drawn to. And also there, you know, there is a, there is a, a you know, baseball has been analyzed by anthropologists as being almost a kind of, um, a kind of uh, secular uh, right, religious right. You know, the, the plate is called the dish, you know, which is, uh, you know, the Catholic, uh, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, artifacts of, from the, from the mass. I, I think, um, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he just was, he was good at it, but uh, he liked to be unusual. And, you know, apparently there was one story after another where, where he speaks Latin to the second baseman and, uh, you know, he explains the infield fly rule in Greek or something. I mean, it's just, it's just one thing after another. It's, this is not as bizarre as it sounds because there is a, there is a certain type of uh, intellectual who likes to, a kind of uh, a dangle uh, little crumbs of erudition in front of people who don't know it. And I love how David Au's book opens with all of the different perspectives on Berg from the various sports writers of the 20s and 30s who just ate him up because whenever they had to produce a column on a down day, they just looked to Berg and say, Professor Berg is doing something absolutely idiosyncratic and arcane right. over it at, at catcher or shortstop. Right. So right. Or, let's and, run with it. And Casey Stingle yeah. used to say he could speak 10 languages but hit in none of them. Although although he retired as a 243 uh, uh, lifetime hitter, there were there were two weeks in 1929 when when Berg uh, led the league in hitting. He was way, he was ahead of uh, of uh, Ruth and uh, Garrick. So he he had a tremendous amount of talent there, and um, I don't know. Um, wouldn't you want to be like a, a baseball player? A, 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 you know, I mean, we love being reporters with the New Haven Independent and doing this program. But if I could be a shortstop for the Brooklyn Robins, I'd, send me up. I'll, t- I'll, <laughs> I'll take it anytime. <laughs> um, the last question I want to ask you on the subject is, uh, what is next for your? Can you tell us anything about? I know that you've been reached out to by some people after the catcher was a spy. This movie came out. Are you still working on this uh, dramatic adaptation or? Well, they owe me some money. They owe me some. Money. So, um, <laughs> do they really? Well, uh, yeah, uh, we're not talking. We're 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 talking about in the like high three figures or something like that. But <laughs> no, the, the my producers were. Uh, what is it? They suffered from a lot of Schadenfreude or something about. I mean, they loved the fact that the movie got bad reviews. They were and then they were on the phone to me saying, "This gives us an opening." Too, because now the world truly needs, uh, truly, truly needs the play to get Moberg. As if understanding Moberg were one of the major questions of our time. Um, the the fact is that there is a documentary about Moberg coming out uh, by um, 
very, very good documentary filmmaker that they, they've been in touch with, named Aviva Kempner, uh, who, who did Hank Greenberg's biography. So that, that will be out. You know, the, uh, one of the versions of my play uh, was done at uh, the Actors Studio, and then we revised it and we did it at the American Jewish Historical Society. There were 200 people there, including a lot of baseball fanatics, because the American Jewish Historical Society has a very big display area about Jewish baseball players. So this was a this was quite a quite a hit there. I the the problem is that um, you need to have uh, a star attached to material the the way uh, Paul Rudd and Sienna Miller were attached to this material in order to get get this get this thing elevated to the next step. So um, uh, as close as my play got to uh, uh, so-called stardom was uh, uh, Tova Feldsha, the actress. Um, she loved the first act in which she would be playing Moberg's sister. So we just have to get her interested in the second act. So any stars listening, uh, reach out to deepfocusradio.com <laughs> right, we're, we're, and we'll uh, connect you with that one. We're available. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> I, it's, it's really a delight to be able to talk with you about your uh, not as schadenfreude filled uh, response to the Catcher was a spy movie, um, but it's a fascinating story. I'd strongly recommend the Nicholas Davidoff book based on what I've read thus far. And and the movie and, and the movie is really it's it's you know it's worth uh, it's worth it's using w- to get acquainted with the story. You know, the more I think about it, the, the 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 other problem is although Paul Rudd has the right face, I think for Mo Burgle, if he maybe he didn't use it properly, he he just seems too slight to me. And uh, there was mm-hmm. I because Berg was a big guy. And you don't, you know, you're not a major league catcher in in the era when the ball was very hard and the gloves were very uh, puny. Uh, I, it it's just physically one doesn't believe, for example, when he's overseas and making his way to uh, to Heisenberg, and some GIs participate in a baseball game and and they say that's Mo Berg because he's playing on a level that they're not. And all these guys are huge GIs, and Paul Rudd is like little Ant Man compared to them. Right. So I think that was a, a bad casting choice physically, but the movie is is um, it's richly produced. Uh, the and the evocations of battle when they're on their way um, really reminded me of um, uh, Saving Private Ryan. Robert Rodat, the screenwriter for this, I think they did a creditable job. They they tried with very difficult material, um, and um, yeah. So I certainly would uh, would recommend it. And maybe a less enthusiastic, but yeah, I'd recommend it as well. Are you up for uh, five minutes on uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Well, sure. And you That's, know what the transition is? Yeah. So to, uh, so first you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen. And we are about to hear a seamless transition from the story of Moberg to the story of Mr. Rogers by Alan Appel. What well, is that transition? Well, the, the Moberg, uh, uh, the Mo, Mo, Ben Lewin's Moberg film, uh, it uh, it puts its bet on uh, that uh, they're exploring Moberg as a gay man. That's the that's the primary focus, not the only one. But uh, Fred Rogers in "Who Would You Like to Be My Neighbor" w- was seen by a lot of people because he was so sweet and nice and open and non macho. Um, uh, many people viewed him as a gay man, and this movie, right from the get go, uh, doesn't. Um, just just sets that aside and it it helps you understand who Fred Rogers is 
by uh, by um, telling you as uh, th- through the original footage that makes up the most of the movie is that he was ba- he, he he was a Presbyterian minister, and what you're seeing when you see Mister Rogers' Neighborhood is basically a kind of secular ministry through television. Yeah. No, I think that, and you're right. I mean, the movie does. So this is a pretty familiar. Um, you know, in terms of film form, a kind of straight up talking head documentary. We just have a lot of archival footage and a lot of people looking at the screen talking. But we're introduced, one of the first interviewees is uh, Fred Rogers' wife. And then we have his two kids. So certainly his heterosexuality is laid, you know, before us, or at least his his married life and kids. And then later on, you know, the uh, <laughs> Officer Clemens, who was... Uh, or oh, is right. a gay man uh, comes out and says, you know, I would have known if Fred. Yeah, this isn't a big part of the movie, but it's certainly something that the movie is interested in addressing because of uh, the singular, um, just open, loving, direct, uh, <laughs> just candid nature of of this man. So unlike anything else on TV, probably before or or since. Uh, I mean, this movie is probably more of a, I think, for better and worse, more of a biography of the show Mister Rogers' Neighborhood, which ran on distributed by PBS from 1968 to 2001, but always um, uh, recorded in Pittsburgh, kind of where Mr. Rogers is from and, and where uh, he uh, kind of built his, his career. And the movie asserts that Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, this show for children, incoming from a trained Presbyterian minister, and maybe even more importantly, if, uh, or as importantly, a disciple of a number of groundbreaking child psychiatrists working at the University of Pittsburgh in the 1950s, exactly. sets out to create this program that takes children's emotions seriously. He says at one point that he never thought that he had to wear a funny hat in order to have a connection with a child. And over the course of the movie, we see you know, how he engages with children on you know the most serious and pressing topics of you know one of the most troubled times in American history, uh, with the first week's shows being uh, indirectly and directly about uh, the Vietnam War to episodes about assassination after RFK's assassination, about divorce, about death, right, racism, but, and segregation. Right. He and, doesn't and, shy away from you know this isn't even though this show about about love and about imagination is you know has some of the familiar trappings of. Um, the the solace and remove from the quote unquote real adult world that kids can live in. Uh, he was not interested in in keeping that world totally absent from from kids. He he knew that they saw it, that they were in it, and he wanted the, to hear their responses to it. But it was all about it was all about you know it, it's the, it was the PBS version of Martin Buber's I and Thou. It was all about relationship and, and the Christian uh, the, the Christian it, it was like. It was the love vibe, um, but but, genu- but genuinely listening to, to 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 people, everything about his tone, um, uh, and everything about the uh, for me one of the interesting things that is talked about in the film is uh, the use he makes of silence, slow delayed response, a lot of looking in the eye, uh, and one one of the great sequences I think is that I don't know, they, they the the filmmakers got a hold of his testimony before before Rhode Island Senator uh, John Pastor's uh, um, inquiry. It was it was an angry uh, senator. Uh, uh, the Senate Subcommittee on Communication in 1969. He's a, he's appealing for federal government funding of PBS. They were but, gonna they were gonna terminate it or something like that, and he he basically. 
totally charms Pastor. I mean, he, he explains to him what the show is like and what it's about. And the tone he uses is exactly the tone you would use with a four-year-old. And Pastor turns away from the microphone and says, I guess you got your 20 million. <laughs> it is. It, it's still shocking watching that and seeing the response of the Senate. I mean, it's it's amazing the effect that Mr. Ro- uh, Mr. Rogers has on him. You know, I was going to ask you what what scenes jump out to you now. Uh, you know, a few days or weeks after you saw it, I was going to say one one of my favorite. Well, there are two images in the movie that I find just breathtaking, and they're of him outside of his studio. There's quite a bit of uh, very brief snippets of home video or home film uh, that are used to show Mr. Rogers outside of the context of, of the Mr. Rogers neighborhood studio. And we see him one swimming underwater in a pool. It's just a couple seconds. I think it's used in the preview as well. Uh, he was an avid swimmer swam every day. The movie talks about his own bizarre numerology of staying at the weight of 143 pounds because 143 corresponds to the number of letters and I love you. I don't know if you remember that. But I remember kind that. of a bizarre, yeah, that was weird. <laughs> a bizarre that thing, was, but, that's weird. That's, but that's, that's, that's worthy of Mo Bird. Swimming was the way that he, he kept that. And, but just a, and, and also of him kind of sitting in this field of grass, I think right before a beach and the wind is blowing and, and the grass, he's, he's kind of at one, he just seems like a man completely at peace with the world and himself. And I think the, the movie does a great job of finding that material that communicates that piece. Now, what I think the movie really struggles with, or at least doesn't live up to, is pushing on the edges of Mr. Rogers a little bit. It hints at some really potentially interesting and upsetting stuff about his life. Uh, or and then and then leaves it by the wayside, particularly in his family life. We get a few. There's one comment from one of his children about how it was a challenge growing up the son of someone who was looked at as the second coming of Christ. That's right. And there's very little, if anything, spoken about again that how difficult it was to be around a man who had this almost like beatific saintly presence. The second, another son says. Mr. Rogers at the dinner table could only voice his anger in the voice of of pu- the puppets. A puppet, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> that just kind of blew me away. Daniel Tiger. I mean, talk about some level of suppression. Yeah, that, no, that, uh, that is, is com- weird. Is I'd like to get aside. I'd like to get Mr. Rogers and Mo Berg in a room together. <laughs> now that would be an interesting interview for Deep Focus, Tom. The uh, the other the other uh, biographical piece of information in this movie, um, the um, uh, would you? Would you be my neighbor? It's very good in the way it deploys the the, the the biographical information. I think because it sort of just when you when when you reach the point where you're you're exasperated about like who was the real real Mister Rogers? They give you they give you a bit of the as you point out the the family life, but they don't give you too much. And it does it. But one one piece that they do they do the movie does convey. Uh, I think I think. But late in the in the story, because early on you learn that he it, that that the genesis is all out of his seminary experience. But we do learn, I think, at least three quarters of the way through, that this this profound desire to be nice has origins even earlier than the seminary, and that is that uh, Fred Rogers always at weight one forty three his entire life. He grew up being called Fat Freddie, and apparently. Uh, the bullying that he experienced as a fat kid was so extreme that you could argue that that created the person who became um, Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Yeah. And that is really not spoken about in the movie. Now I don't, I, I'm kind of nitpicking a little bit because I think that this movie, you know, any 
bio, this another kind of biopic in the in the vein of the Moberg, doc, except this is a documentary, and I think a much more successful one. But if biopics struggle with uh, chronology, they also struggle with uh, being like hagiographies, where the person at the center of the movie or the story, um, because of you know, you have to have a lot of interest and sometimes reverence for someone to make a whole movie about them. And Mr. Rogers, you know, some would say rightfully so, but we really, this really leans heavily on his his saintly side. Now that said, I think that the movie is very convincing in its argument that there was no show like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood on television from the 1960s through the early 2000s. And perhaps there is no show like it now in how... um and how, again, how seriously and directly it engaged with the emotions of children. And, and you know, this movie's gotten a lot of praise for reintroducing a kind of pure, unadulterated love into the American media landscape at a time of such, you know, hatred and vitriol and partisanship and stuff. Here is a, a paragon for someone who just unequivocally felt that each person deserves to be appreciated for exactly who they are. Um, and he was an incredible success. And I... There's something moving about watching that story. The, it, that's that's very true. You know, it, 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 the show had predecessors. In fact, he he had a couple of shows in Pittsburgh. I think uh, versions of this before it uh, developed into Mister Rogers' Neighborhood. I mean, I, I think there must have been kid shows all over the place, um, because I grew up with um, Sheriff John's Lunch Brigade. That's right. When I was a little kid and homesick from school. Uh, I used to eat lunch with this, well, maybe this is because it's L.A. in the 1950s. This guy was a sheriff, and he would he would walk, and maybe it was a, a knockoff. Yeah, he would walk into his his sheriff's office, uh, and, he, uh, did he, and he would take off his hat the way Mr. Rogers would take off his jacket and put on a sweater. Now, this was L.A., so I'm just wondering if he took off his gun <laughs> and hung his holster up on the hook and then sat down to have lunch with us. And then we would have to uh, learn how to eat slowly. And then if we finished everything on our plate, we would have joined the Sheriff John's Clean Plate Club. <laughs> so that, that's, that, that doesn't hold a candle to, um, to the, all the love from Mr. Rogers, but it's something. Um, the, and I, I do want to say just before we close that this movie is by a, uh, Morgan Neville, the director of the documentary Best of Enemies, which that's we spoke right. about in the very... The second episode of, of Deep Focus, the one about uh, Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley Jr. He loves watching old TV, uh, and there's something wonderful about just the yeah. straight-on camera, old, which both movies have. Alan, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show and to talk about two movies. And uh, I think the year transition was a seamless one, indeed. Would you recommend The Won't You Be My Neighbor as well? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, all right, well, listeners, you can find over uh, nearly three years of conversations about movies in New Haven at deepfocusradio.com. Uh, Alan, we'll catch up with you next week. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks.